Thank you. Perfect. Alrighty, so thus far in Genesis, we've talked about how God created the whole universe through his word. Um, and how he brought about the cosmos. Um, and then from that formless void of, of stuff, he then proceeded to create the world. Uh, he separated the light and the darkness. He, he separated the waters. He brought forth plants and vegetation, the earth itself, from the waters. And then from there on, brought about the birds and the fish. Now today we're going to see the last two days of creation. And then we'll get further on into what all of that means together. Um, so with the first verses today. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. Livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. The sixth day of creation receives the most information out of all the days. It begins with the creation of animals who live on the earth. The terminology is the same as on the third day, when God said, let the earth bring forth vegetation. Um, from this, we see that there is a correlation between the third and the sixth day as both deal with land. Uh, vegetation on the third day and then also the animals on the sixth day. There are three distinct kinds of animals mentioned in the text. Uh, livestock represents normal cattle, such as cows, horses, etc. I guess horses might not be considered cattle. I'll ask David after this. Um, creeping things represent the smaller creatures, uh, snakes, mice, Lizards, insects, things that we all despise. The final is beasts of the earth, which represents undomesticated animals or wild animals. Wolves, um, you think of bears, things like that, lions. Ultimately, while God says that the earth, uh, to bring it forth, it is still God who does the creative deed through his word. As verse 25 says, God made the beasts of the earth, the livestock, and everything that creeps. Thus, like the animals of the sea, we find that God is designing each animal found on the earth. Um, the fact that there are kinds further shows the design aspect with each kind. It's set into its boundary. We find this evident in things in genetics and more specifically in DNA, how each animal has its own particular kind. It doesn't break out of that kind. As such, we find that animals are unable to mate with, let's say, other animals not of its kind. And that's partially what we see here. Their kinds are being created. The end result is that God declares his creative word to be good. And that's what we see throughout the rest of the days. Um, now we continue. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the, all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The final act of creation is humanity. Humans are the apex of God's creative work. They take the final spot. And while there are similarities with other creative beings, none of them are given the task, nor are they given the mark, so to speak, which humans are given. The first thing to notice, however, is that the way the text says, let us make man in our image. We all notice the plural here, uh, the plural usage of our instead of my image, for example. The question is, what does it mean when the text says, let us make man in our image? And now there are a number of different perspectives on it. Um, 
Some believe that assuming Genesis was not written by a singular author or that it means that it's a leftover piece of polytheism. Uh, This, however, seems unlikely since Genesis 1 is very, very much against any sort of polytheism that we have seen. Um, It's very clear that God is singular, there is only one, and that he has created it all by himself. Now, others hold that this is a reference to angels. Um, and that God is speaking to his holy council, the heavenly court, which as we find in Daniel is there, um, find out throughout the scriptures, the Old Testament, that there is this heavenly court that, that is referenced. While this could be the case, the simple truth is angels are never involved in the creative acts found in the text. So far and in context, only God is the creator. Thus, for God to speak this to the angels as a way for them to be involved with the creation of man, it seems unlikely. However, it is possible that God is merely drawing their attention to the new work of man that he's about to do, in which case the angels would only be told to bear witness to the creative act rather than partake. Um, Another idea is that this is being spoken to by God himself. Uh, In this sense, it would be similar to you saying to yourself, "Um, let's go to the mall. I'm going to go to the mall. Um, Or when you're considering something in front of you and you might say to yourself, let's see if this will work now after you've worked on it for a little bit. This is possible since in the scriptures there are some evidences to this happening with people. Um, However, another possibility is that God is merely talking to his spirit. As you remember, the spirit of God is hovering above the water. Assuming that we translate the spirit of God as... um, that he was hovering over the waters and not the wind of God, then this is a plausible thing to say, though it is greatly diminished again if it is translated as the wind of God. Still, that's just an idea. Finally, the Christian tradition views this as a reflection of the Trinity, uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit talking amongst themselves. This view is certainly plausible, but only once the revelation of Christ is revealed. It is highly doubtful that the original author of Genesis, and not God, but the person who penned it, had a conception about the sun. Uh, But we could say that about many of the prophecies and typologies within the Old Testament. The prophets, for example, they didn't quite grasp the fact that the sun was going to come into existence. They didn't understand all of that. Um, We can't expect them to. But after the fact, we can see it. We can see it in the text. And so it's very possible that that's what's happening here, is that the Trinity is simply talking to itself. Um, And it's a very plausible argument. Ultimately, though, scholars are divided, and there is little consensus. It seems likely that God is either encouraging himself, talking to himself, or the Trinity talking amongst itself, or that God is talking to the angelic hosts, through though the angels are not involved with the creation itself. So we can't know for sure. So I don't know. You can decide for yourselves <laughs> which one you prefer, and that's fine. I know some of you already have decided these things, so I just wanted to give you some options. Um, all right, then. The other problem comes from when the text means when it says, uh, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Uh, this is often referred to as the Imago Dei. You know I've talked about this, especially at the end of every sermon. We talk about the Imago Dei, the, the image of God. We're creating the image of God. Um, now, this means that humans, again, are creating the image of God, and scholars debate what that means exactly. There are those who believe that the image refers to our physical selves, while the likeness refers to our spiritual side. That assumes, however, that the image and the likeness are different, whereas it could be that the image and the likeness are mutual. 
Um, if this is the case, then both image and likeness reflect that we are created a Madre Dei. What this then means is, again, up for debate. Some believe that the Imago Dei represents the mental and the spiritual faculties we possess. Thus, our ability to reason, our personality. Uh, the one problem with this is that commentators uh, may overestimate some human characteristics. So, what's to say that it's just reason, or that it is personality, or why are these particular characteristics more drawn out? And as such... Um, we don't know what exactly if that's the case. Others believe, however, that it is a physical resemblance to the Creator. The problem with this is how the Old Testament views God as invisible. Though if we take Colossians into account in that Christ is the image and we are the image of the image, then that makes sense for us to be the physical representations of God by bearing his image because we bear Christ's image. So that's possible. Others, however, argue that the image makes us God's representatives on earth. Um, in the ancient Near East, kings were often associated with their gods by being their representatives. Thus, very often, the kings would be called gods themselves because they were the representatives of the gods. And then finally, the idea is that it allows humanity to relate to God in a unique way. All right, which one is the right view? <laughs> Ultimately, all these views seem to have some truth to them. Humans, while similar to the animals, are also very distinct in many ways. Thus, it is likely that the image of God is imprinted on humanity, and as such, it comes with certain mental, physical, and spiritual factors which make man, mankind, humanity, women and men, uh, unique and distinct. Likewise, the idea of humans being God's representatives on earth makes sense in context. Thus, each view has merit, and likely each view hits certain things that are true of the Imago Dei. Ultimately, humanity is said to have dominion and rulership over the world, whether the fish, the sea, the birds, the heavens, the livestock, earth, and creeping things. Uh, this does not indicate a forceful or what we would consider to be a, a harsh rulership. Instead, it reflects God himself, who is kind and loving. Thus, the same should we be, humans for our rule around the world. We are called to rule and subdue, but in kindness and love and cherish it, because it is made by God. We finally receive another fact, and that is that man is created in the image of God, but it is not man in, as in males only. It's not just men, uh, but humanity. This is seen further as male and female are both created in this way. Thus, there is no gender which is higher or closer to the image of God. Both possess it intrinsically. Um, so that's just another factor that the text talks about. Alrighty, the next few verses. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. These next verses further establish humanity as the ones who are to reign over the earth. 
They who are God's representatives, by being made in his image, are called to be faithful stewards of all that God has made. Yet before this occurs, there is a sense in which the human aspect of male and female is fleshed out. God blesses humanity, and he has blessed um, other aspects of creation with being able to be fruitful and to multiply. This deals with progeny, the ability to have children and procreate. It is a blessing in the scriptures to procreate, and it further establishes our own call to be creators, just as God himself is the creator. To fill the earth and subdue it is often called the cultural mandate. In this sense, some scholars believe that humans are called to create culture, create civilizations. Um, The earth is ours to inhabit and to control. Yet again, this does not mean that we should pillage the earth in order to create these things, but care for it as a wise ruler who cares for his subjects. God also shows the purpose of uh, previous acts of creation. The creation of the plants were for humans and for animals for food. God provides for his creation. This also further shows that there was a design to the creation of the world where each aspect had a particular purpose. Ultimately, God reflects and sees all that the created order and describes it as very good. Thus ends the sixth day of creation. Alrighty, final verses. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all of the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all of his work that he had done in creation. The seventh and the final day of creation now comes into focus. The first verse deals with the reality that all the creative aspects of the universe had been accomplished. Not only had the heavens and the earth, the physical properties of the universe, but also the host of them. That is, the stars in the heavens, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, the animals and mankind on the land. All of it had been completed before the seventh day. God's work had been accomplished then, and because of this, God rested. The term rested here does not necessarily have a sense of needing respite. Instead, it is more akin to ceasing. God had already created all that he had desired for his glory. Thus, there was nothing more to create, so he ceased from creating in that respect. The final element of the seventh day is that God blessed it and made it holy. So far, God had only blessed the animals and humanity. Thus, for the last day to be blessed shows significance. There are those who also wonder if those who observe the seventh day will receive the blessing itself, uh, though this is speculative. We're not sure if that's the case. Ultimately, this is a precursor to the Sabbath, the day of rest found in the law. Interestingly enough, the word Sabbath here is not used, though. So it's just a, it's a pre-time before that. So the final thought of the week of creation is how we all stand in awe over what God has accomplished through his creative word. And then thus ends the creation story. Alright. The main point of these verses are to close out the week of creation. Specifically, we find the conclusion of the creative narrative with the creation of the land animals and the highest order of creation, which is humanity who bears the image of God. From this, God finishes his creation and upon being well pleased, ceases from creating on the seventh day. Thus, we find the creation of the cosmos. But most importantly, we find this grand God 
who has purposefully designed the universe for his glory. And that's the most important thing we can get, is the fact that God has accomplished this. So now we come to the application points. And I love all of you so much. Days. Days. In our modern time, there has arisen a naturalistic view of the universe. And naturalist means that there's only nature. There's no supernatural. Many naturalists use science in order to try to disprove God. In particular, disprove what is written especially about in the scriptures, especially in Genesis 1-12. through So let me ask a question. How many of you were in school and learned evolutionary theory and thought, wait a minute, that goes against what I find in the scriptures? Come on, there's got to be a few, a few more. A little bit? All right, I got a few. I got a few. Some of you went to Christian schools, I can tell. Um, Just kidding. Now, in evolutionary theory um, and in general scientific understanding, the earth is, let's say, billions of years old and not thousands of years old. That's the problem that we encounter. Because of these discrepancies, I thought it would be best to look at some different views of Genesis 1 and into Genesis 2 and how to interpret it. Here we go. The first is the literal view. The literal view takes Genesis 1, obviously, literally. So there was literally six days of creation and then the seventh day of rest. Most individuals hold that hold this view hold a young earth view, so that means that the earth is thousands of years old, not billions, and generally conclude that science is wrong. Um, all evolutionary theory is wrong. Now, there are problems with the literal view, though. First, the evening and the morning motif in the text would have taken uh, would need to be taken figuratively rather than literally every day. Remember, the sun and the moon weren't created until the fourth day. So the question is, how can there be a morning and an evening before that? Um, some will argue that it implies days, but even then, it is still figurative rather than literal, at least until that point. Likewise, there is no reason to take uh, certain texts in the Old Testament as metaphor or figurative, or there is um, reason to. For example, the Psalms say that God is a rock. Is God literally a rock? No. (laughs) God is not literally a rock. Um, Well, obviously he's not. It's trying to convey something about God's character and as such tells us about God while not literally calling him a rock. The same could be said of Genesis 1, that it is purposefully being metaphorical. Still, though, despite some of the problems that we can see, the literal view is possible. But it is also to be considered inconclusive. So the next theory, the gap theory. Um, This theory states that there was a time gap between verses 1 and 2. God created the heavens and the earth, and then there was billions of years, and then God continued on with the seven days of creation. Um, Eventually, then, God specifically worked on these seven days of creation, forming the universe. The problem is that there's no evidence in the text that this is the case. It doesn't seem to flow like that. It doesn't say that there was billions or millions of years. It just says it's happened. So it's possible, but inconclusive. The day gap theory. This theory holds that there is a gap between days. Um, So God created the cosmos, and on the first day, he separated the light and darkness, evening and morning, the first day. Then billions and billions of years later, the second day of creation occurred, and so forth. 
Um, the problem is that doesn't appear anywhere in the text as they seem to be consecutive days. So it's possible, but it's inconclusive. Now there's the day-age theory. This is the view that each day itself was an age. Thus, when God created the light and separated the light from the darkness and formed the day and the night, it took millions of years to accomplish. This is possible since the word um, for day used in the text can be used to describe an extended period of time rather than just one day. It would be like, let's say, if we say, in the day of Abraham Lincoln, we don't literally mean one day, we mean there's a lot of days in the days of Abraham Lincoln, um, or during that time period. Now the problem is that the text seems to imply that it is to be taken as a literal day. That's the way that the text is supposed to be implied. It looks like it's supposed to be a literal day. There was evening and morning the first day. There was evening and morning the second. So it's possible, but it's also inconclusive. The framework hypothesis, and this one is probably the most well-known one within a lot of biblical scholarship. Uh, And the most well-known version of this theory is that the text is not literal, but specifying particulars. Um, In this sense, the first day through the third day all represent the creation of dominions. And the fourth through the sixth days represent the inhabitants of the dominions. Thus, day one, it is light and darkness. And then on day four, it's the sun, the moon, and the stars. Um, Day two is a separation of the waters. And the creation of the firmament or the heavens. Um, And then on day five, it's the creation of the sea creatures which go into water, and the birds, which fly in the heavens. The fourth day is the creation of the land, and then the sixth day is the creation of the animals and the humanity that lives on the land. Now the problem is that we can read this into the text. (laughs) Um, One could just as easily argue that day two goes with day four instead, and that day three goes with day fives and six. Um, Thus there is no great consensus on the matter, so it's possible but ultimately inconclusive. The next one is a newer one that's come out recently, functional creation. Um, This idea is actually gaining a lot of steam in a lot of different circles. And basically the argument is that it is not at all meant to be historical per se. Instead, when the days are mentioned, it is merely God naming the function of each item. Thus the light and the darkness were already there, but they were told their function on the first day. And the same throughout. And that's the same again for everything else. Uh, This would allow for something like evolutionary theory to have occurred during the time before we are told the function of each element of creation. The problem is that the text doesn't really seem to imply this is the case. Likewise, it seems strange that this would be the case since it implies humans and animals, etc. It would imply that they didn't have a function before that happened. So they existed, but they didn't have function. Um, So this view is possible, but it's inconclusive. Now, Hebrew myth. Since they were in Egypt for generations, they would argue that they could have taken Egyptian myths and given them better theological undertones. In this, the goal is not to worry about the physical understanding of the universe, but to focus on the spiritual, religious, or theological understanding. Um, This could make sense as it would not focus on the creation, but the creator understanding him more. The problem? 
there's little evidence that the myths are found in Egypt. Likewise, one can find parallels literally with anything in the scriptures. Um, There are parallels, for example, with Jesus, and they'll say that Jesus is like this Egyptian deity. You can make a parallel with anything. There's so many different polytheistic views that you're going to find lots of parallels. Um, And so because of that, there's no conclusive evidence that this is the case here. So again, it's possible, but inconclusive. So when we consider all the above, they each have good arguments and they each have bad arguments. Not one is necessarily the best, though there are those which seem to make more sense and because of that have a bit more probability than others. So why did I mention all these? Well, the reason why I did so was that we can remember that there are different views um, by very wonderful godly men and women and that no one view is necessarily the best or can be ascertained to be most right per se. That is, you can interpret the text differently and you can love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Now, as stated previously, something which is a problem is still science. The biggest problem with science is the fact that we have discovered the speed of light, for example. Um, We found that those dots in the nighttime sky are not only stars, but galaxies, and not only that, but that the time it would take for their light to reach us would be millions of years. How could it be that that could happen in a matter of thousands of years? That's the problem. Likewise, there are those who argue in regards to evolution. We can look back at the genetic makeup and we can find how through various means such as random mutations, life evolved, per se. Thus, how could it be possible that God created the universe in such a way as we see in Genesis 1 when we have all this other scientific evidence such as um, the stars and light and um, evolution? Well, first of all, I want to argue something strange, and that is that when it comes to evolution, um, that would not be a problem for really any of the views that we just talked about except maybe the literal view. Now, Something we want to consider is that when scientists say random, it is not necessarily chance. One can define random from a purely scientific standpoint to simply mean it does not come by means of helping or hurting the organism. It isn't as though the organism is purposefully receiving these random mutations to harm or to help it. It simply happens. Thus, A mutation comes random apart from whether it could make the animal better or worse. Now, taken random in that light, one could easily argue that God designs the organism by bringing forth the mutation, which would make the organism either better or worse for his purpose. Thus, God could technically use evolution in order to bring about his final goal, which is the creation of humanity. Some would even argue that it's entirely possible that God could, for all intensive purposes, use evolution as a means to bring about the human race, and once humanity reached the point it was destined to, he would bestow within us a soul and place his image on us. One would also like to add that there would be no reason to assume that Adam and Eve were not true humans. Whether God chose and used the evolutionary process to get to the point that humans would exist and then gave them a spirit and placed his image on them or put them in the garden and then the fall happened. Uh, That is possible even with evolutionary theory. 
or even if God purposefully made humans specifically without the evolutionary process. Simply put, the historic Adam and Eve is possible regardless of the view you hold. This continues, though, with the origin of life. Scientists recognize that the origin of life coming by random means is so minuscule that it's unlikely to have happened by itself. And this is even atheist scientists will say this. Some have even postulated that because of it, it evolved elsewhere and then came here somehow. Um, In other words, it's miraculous, they'll even use the word miraculous, that life exists here on this planet. Thus, even from a purely scientific view, the chance of life occurring without any help or by itself is very unlikely. And I've heard estimates of 10 to the 60th power. Ridiculous numbers. Now, the next issue is the concept of common ancestry. This is held by many to be what we see on Earth, that all life on Earth comes from one common ancestor. Genetically, there is good evidence for this since there are similarities within our DNA. We can see that. Because of this, it is argued that there was one common ancestor and then uh, different forms of life came from the common ancestor. And it's like a tree. It starts off and then it branches out. Um, The problem, though, is the fossil record. Within the fossil record, there is no evidence of life evolving from one species to another by natural means. In fact, in the fossil record, there is no evidence from uh, dinosaurs came birds, for example. There is evidence that some dinosaurs did have feathers, but those dinosaurs simply died off. They didn't evolve into another species. That is the problem for many who hold to the naturalistic theory of evolution. They argue that everything came through random means, and when they interpret random, they mean chance, and that through natural selection, the animals came to be what they are currently. The problem is that it is not a science that is a philosophical statement, which is based upon the idea that nature is all there is, and no supernatural such as God. So we could argue against this by replying that there is no scientific evidence for random to mean simply chance, and instead argue where the evidence leads, which is for theists, would be God, and that he led the design process. However, what is just described is not what is commonly referred to as theistic evolution. What theistic evolutionists generally hold is that God merely started the universe and by literal chance, humanity came about without God's direction. He just started it. I find this to be a weak argument. There is no reason why God could not use evolution and direct it to his desired purpose, which is not chance, but design. Now, this is a serious problem for the person who only believes in nature again, but not so for the theist. For those who believe in God, it is entirely possible that God could put the mutations in, ex nihilo, into these different forms of life to continue the process for his design for the world. Such a person who believes such a view would be called a progressive creationist. That God allowed certain elements of evolution to occur on its own while at the same time adding to it at specific moments for specific reasons. Thus, such a person would be arguing that God was very involved every step of the way. Now, do I hold this view? That's the question. Because some of you might throw me out. (laughs) Maybe not. I don't know. Um, Not necessarily. I don't necessarily hold this view. I don't. 
I mean, to be honest, it's also entirely possible that God created the universe in literally six days. It's possible he miraculously created the universe to appear old or to be old because an older earth would be a better habitat for his image bearers. Um, thus, we, could, we would see everything exactly as scientists see it because it naturally is that way. But God could have created it all in six days. The question would be, could we go back and witness the creation or not? Um, one could argue both ways. In one sense, maybe we couldn't go back and see it, but we can only see the result of his special creative works. On the other, maybe we can see it and what it would be like. Again, all of this is up in the air. All I'm saying is, it's possible. <laughs> it's possible. It's possible to interpret Genesis 1 and understand evolutionary theory in light of such an interpretation as not being incongruent, and then it's possible to interpret it literally. And something I just thought of, and I thought about it, and I didn't write it down, but we're going to have to pause there, Pat. All right. Whenever I read about Genesis and the miraculous making of the universe, do you know what I never hear? Jesus. What am I saying? All right. Jesus and his miracles. These things are done miraculously ex nihilo. Consider, for example, the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus takes the bread, takes the fish. What does he do then? Blesses. What does God say in Genesis 1? He blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply. Jesus, in the gospel narratives, takes a few things and multiplies them. Now, do we see... For those bread that's being multiplied, do we see it being planted, the grain that needs to make that? <laughs> do we see the rain falling on the plants? Do we see the crop rising? Do we see the threshing? Do we see the bread being made after it's threshed? No. We see the end result, which is more bread. The argument I'm saying is that God could have simply done the creation in the same way. We see the end result, nothing more. It's possible for God to create everything in literally six days that we see now. It is entirely possible. It makes sense. Especially when you consider the miraculous works of Jesus Christ. How he can simply say, Lazarus, come out. How does he say, Lazarus, come out, and then Lazarus rises from the dead without being touched? It's a miraculous work. Creation itself is a miraculous work. It is something that is beyond humanity, by definition. We see the results. That's all I know. I cannot tell you otherwise. <laughs> I don't know. Um, and so because of that, like, we have to remember that it is that. It is a miraculous working. It is God supernaturally doing something within the created order. Um, and because of that, we praise God. It makes sense for God to have done it because we see the ramifications of what he has done. So again, my main concern with all of this is that we as Christians would respect one another and acknowledge that the most important points which we can all agree on are threefold. The first is that the universe had a beginning. The second is that the universe had a cause. And that the third is that the universe is designed. 
The beginning of the universe is best understood by God. The first cause of the universe is best understood as being God. And the design of the universe is best understood by God designing it. We as Christians can disagree on our interpretation of Genesis, but those are the most important three things that we can all agree on, is my point. Far too often, uh, young earth creationists and old earth creationists, they point their guns at each other, when in truth they should be uh, both fall into one group, which is that we're all part of intelligent design. The real issue isn't with each other. The real battle is against the view that nature is all that there is. It's against that view that we all need to argue against, not against each other as vehemently as we do. So the end point, I think it's inconclusive. Um, There are different views, and that's all right. It's all right that, that, that that's the case. One day, we will know much more than we do now. For example, in the future, for example, scientists will always argue this. They'll say, in the future, we'll find you know, that, that fossil that'll show us that evolutionary theory is 100% right and it's all chance. And then you know, the creationists can argue, well, in the future, we'll find scientific evidence to prove that it was literally six days. <laughs> like, you can go either way with that. So the real goal for us, I think, is all to be peaceful, to be loving, and to know that our God is truly marvelous. And that the universe claims this view regardless of what your personal view is. That is what the universe proclaims to us every day. Your God is incredible. And you know him through, your, through his son Jesus. It says that to us every day. So I think that's the most important thing that we can learn from Genesis 1. All right. That's, that's, a, that's long. I don't care what you say. That's rough. All right, today's text, the Imago Dei. Um, we dealt with the creation of humanity. Of all the created order, the creation of humanity is the most significant and the most important. When we consider the universe and we consider the stars of the sky, the earth itself, the magnitude of all the created order, it can surprise us to consider that we, you and I, are the most important of it all. Out of all of it, you and I. Now before we go too far, we don't want to say that this is, uh, that we should become conceited. <laughs> um, simply put, we are still created. It is not as though nothing else is good or beneficial, but instead all the created order is called good because it is good as made by God. However, we should also consider that humanity it does have a high status in design. This higher status is made manifest in our relation to God. We are, as the text says, created in his image. Scholars note that this image does not make us God. Instead, it is like the tabernacle during the wilderness period. The tabernacle was said to be an image of the heavenly Tabernacle, And we find the same thing in Hebrews about the temple. The temple on earth is just a, uh, an image of the temple in heaven. So it is with us. And in Colossians, when we talked about it, we learn that Christ is the image himself. And we are the image of him. Still, the question is, what does that mean? As we noted, there are many different ideas which have come through church history and Jewish history to try and describe what exactly it means to bear the image of God. 
And again, personally, it seems that all the above points we talked about hit the truth in some way. We bear the image in our personalities, in our attributes, in in what we are called to be and do as God's representatives here on earth. Likewise, when we consider the term image, again, it's similarly used as another term in the Old Testament, as an idol in the Old Testament. And that might add to what we see. As we know, idols, they're forbidden according to the Ten Commandments. One of the reasons for this is likely that God already has idols set in place. And they're not made of wood. They're not made of stone. But made of flesh. Us. When we also consider how idols were thought to have the spirit of the gods within them, it furthers the point that as we are given the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, thus we recognize that to bear the image of God further reflects that we are His and by Him we spread His glory as we live for Him. Now right away we should begin to see something. And that is that this then means that you and I are special in relation to God as his image bearers. It reminds us that we have a responsibility to fulfill what he has called us to be, to subdue and have dominion over the earth, to be rulers of the earth, which reflects the heavenly ruler, to take care of the earth, to cherish all that God has made. This is a stark contrast to what we see in the pagan religions, and even further a starker contrast to what we see in our own society. In pagan religions, it was not every person who bore the image of their gods. But for them, their kings and their rulers alone would bear the image and all the others would be subject to them. Thus, if we weren't kings, if we weren't rulers, we did not bear the image of the gods. Likewise, this goes in further contrast with pagan religions in regards to human creation. For the majority of pagan religions at the time, humans were not created with dignity. Instead, they were created in order to do the work so the gods wouldn't have to do it. They were little more than slaves for the gods. They were used by the gods. There was no dignity, no sanctity, no worth to human life because of this. In our own society, we see much of the same idea going on. The difference, however, is that in our society, because humanity is nothing more than a chance evolved animal Humanity does not have any inherent dignity, sanctity, or worth at all. It should not surprise us that when the Judeo-Christian view of humanity started to decline in the 20th century, we saw the rise of fascists such as Mussolini, Hitler, Stalin, and General Mao. If humans have no intrinsic worth or value, then they are able to be expendable, cast aside as means to whatever tyrant's ends. Thus, the doctrine of the Imago Dei is as important today as it has ever been. As we continue to see in our own societies how human life is far too easily taken for granted, it is our responsibility to speak loudly that each and every human life has dignity, sanctity, and worth. It is our responsibility to remind each other and others that according to the scriptures, humans have a high calling, that we are image bearers of God Most High, and we fulfill that calling when we reflect Jesus Christ, the visible image of the invisible God. Don't let the world try to tell you otherwise. Don't let the world tell you that you're worthless. Don't let it continue its naturalistic assumptions about each of us. The truth is, we are all blessed with the image of God. Every single person, from the womb onward. 
bears the image of God. So while we can discuss this whole concept and put it on the table of discussion, what we cannot do is let it remain on the table. Instead, be reminded of it yourself. You, you personally, you have worth to God. You have worth in the world, and this worth is founded on the fact that you bear God's image. This brings us full circle. For in Genesis, we find the creation of the universe, and yet as marvelous this universe created is, it is you, and it is you, and it's you, and you, and you. It's all of us. All of us, your friends and your family, your neighbors. It is us. We are the pinnacle, the high point, the masterpiece of creation. So again, remember this. Remember you have a high place in the natural order and it is not something small. While the pagans believed it was only for royalty, Genesis says it belongs to each of us. Don't forget it. For by it we will remember that we are created for a purpose and that purpose is to marvelously bear his image. Now, naturally, this leads us to the gospel. And, I mean, right now we're still in Origins. Uh, we're going to be in Origins, guess what, the next few weeks. <laughs> um, but as it is, in the origin story, we can begin to see this sense of, wow, our God is so incredible. And also the fact that, wow, you are incredible because you're incredibly made by a creator who is wonderful. And so because of this, because we bear the image of God, we have this sanctity, worth, and dignity to each and every one of us. That there's not one single person who doesn't have that. And that's why we should be people who desire justice. Why we should be people who desire to glorify God by bearing with one another in our burdens. To love one another, to rise together with other humans. And to also recognize that anyone who is in sin, can be redeemed. But that's the problem, is that the problem happened in Genesis 3, which we're going to get to in a few weeks, and that's the fall. And how the fall has direct ramifications for all of us, and that because of the fall, we all sin. And we all still have the image of God imprinted on us, but at the same time, we sin, and we deserve justice, and we deserve judgment. You know, a lot of people wonder, how can a loving God send anyone to hell, for example? But they never ask the other question. How could a loving God send anyone who is so unworthy to heaven? <laughs> that's another question to ask. And that's the problem that we have until Jesus comes. And then when Jesus comes, the word that we're talking about in Genesis, the word of God himself is made into flesh. And he comes and he bears the light against the darkness. And he separates day and night. And he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he is. Because through him he lived, he died, and he rose again. And then through his resurrection, through all of these means of who he is, we can partake of the glory of God. And we are redeemed from our sins. Thus humanity has two options before us. We can either... Follow Christ. Give all of our burdens over to Christ. Recognize the greatness of Jesus Christ. 
or we can choose not to. For those who do, there is eternal salvation, there is glory, there is love. For those who do not, there is judgment. So as we continue forward, as we continue forward in the Genesis narrative, and as we continue to consider all of these different possibilities of what it means and how we are understanding it, let's not forget the wonderful God who created it. Let's not forget about the wonderful God who designed so much more than we give him credit for. Because all this world is a beautiful design. Each one of us, we're all beautiful design. And when we're redeemed, that beautiful design comes through. So, let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for what you have accomplished um, through the creation of the universe, through your son Jesus Christ, who redeems humanity, who redeems the highest order of creation, and how that trickles down into the rest of creation as well, because we can then live for the glory of God, for you. So, Lord, as we continue forward, we ask that you would continue to bless us, that you would continue to grow our hearts and our minds further into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, and that we would seek to honor and glorify you with all of our lives. May you alone be praised for all that you have accomplished. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.